Yeah, um, hi, um, uh, my name's Stephen. I'm from London, so uh, I, I live in uh, central London and work for a church that I used to work uh, for a number of years as a criminal defense barrister um, in central London, and now I work for a, a church there as well. So, yeah. So, Stephen will be talking to us every evening throughout the week. So, would you like to tell us what's going on this week with you? Yeah, so I, I um, when I was at university, I encountered in a new way uh, the person of Jesus Christ. And I encountered a number of people at university. Um, I encountered my wife at university. Um, I encountered some great friends at university. Um, and, uh, but, but the most, e even more significant than my wonderful wife is the, was the person of Jesus Christ. And it was in a slightly unexpected. And what I found is that when I encountered him, it was a little bit surprising. And uh, he wasn't necessarily what I had thought he might be. And he was much more dynamic, much more interesting, much more captivating than I had thought might be the case. And that encounter that I had at university uh, changed my life. So I would love this week just to share a little bit with you about what I've seen in the life of Jesus and just encourage you, um, maybe for the first time in your lives, maybe, uh, maybe just to encourage you a little bit more to explore um, who Jesus is, what he says, what he did, and the difference that might make um, for every person in this slightly lopsided tent. Um, so, yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Take it away. Thank you very much. There's a lot of kit up here, so I'm just going to throw some of it away. I hope that's okay. Um, it's great to be with you. Uh, so, let's begin. Yeah, so I want to talk tonight about what it means uh, to live a life of significance and purpose. What real significance might look like. Um, and my talk tonight is called Real Significance. And I wonder where you look to to find your sense of significance. Like, we all want to feel like our lives matter, like we make a difference. Like, our lives aren't just like a pebble chucked in a pond and just a ripple that disappears the second we're gone. We want to know that we're making an impact, that we're making a dent, that we're leaving an impression on the people's lives around us and on this world. We have this desire almost within us to make a difference, to make our lives count. We want to live with purpose and meaning. And we want to know that our lives are significant in some way, that people might notice um, what we're doing and all those sorts of things. And we can live for significance in all sorts of different places. They can be in our achievements. Um, you know, it might be you're brilliant at studying um, and doing exams or coursework or whatever. It might be that um, you're okay at that, but you're, you really nail it uh, in sports. And that's your thing. You know, you're, you're just amazing in that. You might be you've got an awesome level of social success, that you are the definitive Beanock um, and everyone just knows that you're one of the big names on campus. Um, it might be that you look really for the admiration of your friends in your hall, or it might be um, other things. But actually, where you look to to find your significance is one of the most significant things about you. But we rarely speak about it, even to ourselves. And I've looked in all sorts of different places over the years to kind of find my sense of significance. I was born, actually born and bred in a beautiful little town just north of uh, London called Luton. And, um, and uh, oh, it's <laughs> not nice. No, and, and, um, and actually, I always feel a little bit uh, protective, a little bit defensive about where I grew up. And I think it's because Luton is one of those places which appears at first glance to have uh, very few redeeming features. But let me tell you, having lived there for 22 years of my life, it's got none, actually. Um, but I love it. It's my hometown. I'm very fond of it and very proud of it indeed. 
And I went um, uh, to quite a rough school. It was known as the worst school in Luton, which is quite a difficult thing to achieve, actually. And um, these days, you would call it a failing school, um, largely because it failed and they knocked it down. And, um, and, and in that school, there were a lot of quite dangerous, violent people. So I didn't look for my significance in like, how hard I was, how I could handle myself. I was okay, but I wasn't in the league. There was a very clear hierarchy, and I was close to the bottom of it. I knew some people at the top, but I was close to the bottom of it. And um, so I didn't look in that area for my significance. I looked for my significance in kind of my academic success. I was relatively clever there and in my sporting success. But when I got to university, it felt like both those things were slightly undermined because people come from all over the country. You might have noticed this. And you might be like a big fish in the small pond of your school, but you get to university and there are other people who are cleverer than you. Um, some people are like, no, there aren't. Okay, but I found there were some people who are cleverer than me. And I found there were some people, you know, I was quite good at swimming. I represented Luton at swimming, which is actually a difficult thing to do. It doesn't sound it. And, um, but there were people who like swam for the... For England at university, you know, where do you find your significance when people are surpassing the things on which you had built your sense of significance? And so I thought, oh, you know, maybe maybe, maybe I should look for it in other places. So I got really into parties. I, 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 you know, really loved being in the party scene and going out and doing all sorts of things. And I also joined the Law Society because that seemed to me pretty much an excuse to do just that. And um, I became a president of the Law Society at my university, which is basically an excuse to have um, law firms pay for your parties. It's a really great deal. And, uh, and loved that and loved all that kind of stuff and loved what I was doing. But I, I still didn't feel like I quite had that sense of significance. I, I went on a night out and went to our equivalent um, of... Are we here? Ah! Uh, went to our equivalent of crisis and, um, you know, I, I met a lovely woman there, a, a young, beautiful young girl, and, um, our, and actually I, I'm still with her now and our relationship has outlasted. The average relationship started in that venue by about... <laughs> About 20 years. Um, but um, but I, that was great. But again, it didn't feel like enough to set, build my sense of significance on. I went on to work as a, a criminal defense barrister. I was defending people accused of crimes. I did that for seven, eight years. Loved doing it. Over the years, I represented um, you know, all sorts of people accused of criminal offenses. Uh, I represented hundreds, maybe over a thousand people um, accused of crimes. It's great to see so many of you here tonight. And, um, but, I, but even then, I, did, I was very successful relatively, career was going very well, I was earning kind of 10 times what I thought I would earn at that age of my life, but I didn't, it didn't feel like I quite hit it. I was trying to build my significance on my success, my wealth, what others thought of me, but it didn't feel like those things could quite take the weight of what I needed from them. And I wonder what you build your significance on, your achievements, your successes your sporting ability, your wit, your beauty, your brilliant mind, your great friends, your perfectly organized Instagram feed. I don't know what it is for you. But actually, there's only two places that we tend to look for our significance. One is outside of ourselves, external, what other people think of us. So we, we kind of feel we're significant if that's what people's opinion of us is, what maybe how others view you, how society views you, how your parents view you. How your friends, your, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, you know, what their opinion of you is. And that's very tempting you know, to, to base your life on how many likes and loves you get. But we're also a little bit wary of it because we feel 
that then our significance is vulnerable to someone else's opinion. And we're a bit wary of that because we like, don't like the fact that that leaves us out of control. Like that their opinion of us could change. And therefore we could lose our sense of significance. We don't like the idea of basing our significance external to us because then it makes us feel quite vulnerable. So we say, okay, we're not going to do that. We'll just base it on ourselves. I'll decide what my significance is. I'll just decide I'm amazing. And everyone's just got to get with that. And that sounds much more tempting because actually then... Uh, you know, you're not vulnerable, you're not vulnerable to what other people feel of you. But the only problem is, we don't live like that. So, it's very rare that you will write an essay, or do a piece of coursework, or do an exam, and come away from it and think, that is the best essay anyone has ever written in my subject. I am convinced of it. I claim that for myself. I am, you know, future generations of students in my halls are going to pin that essay up on the wall and say that is the paradigm which we are striving to attain. I am one of the greatest minds of my generation. You don't react in that way. What you really desperately want to know is what mark am I going to get? What does my tutor think of my essay? You know, no matter how many times you stand and look in the mirror and say to yourself, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful. When someone else says it to you, it feels different. I mean, imagine someone comes up to you tonight, you know, and they say, you know, do you like, you're beautiful. You're not likely to respond, yeah, I know, I was just telling myself the same thing. You see, we're... Whether we like it or not, we long for significance in the eyes of others. We long for the respect and admiration of others, particularly those who we respect and admire. And we're kind of relational social beings. We're wired that way. So where we look for significance is one of the most significant things about us. Yet we rarely ever talk about it, even to ourselves. And I just want to look at one story in this little... Um, mini moleskin style thing, um, which is an account of Jesus's life. And I just wonder if you could bear to, to turn with me to page 18 on that story. And this is a story, Jesus is kind of, you know, bowling through uh, the Middle East as he did. And um, it's a bit hot, so he stops at a well. And while he's at the well, he has an encounter with uh, a woman at this well. And I'm just going to read this now. And it's on page 18, page 18, yeah of um, these little kind of uncover books. And um, I'm going to pick up the story um, uh, just after the little six. Um, so it says, it was about noon when this encounter happened. Uh, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Because his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Because Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you've got nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can we get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now it gets a little bit controversial. 
He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you're now with is not your husband. What you've said is, is true. So the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you'll worship the Father, neither on a mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. The salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and now come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they're the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And then just a little bit more on the next page, because I can tell you're enjoying it. Um, Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Um, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? So as I said, when I encountered Jesus at university, I was really surprised by who I met. And I don't know if you've ever heard anything about Jesus before in your life, or if you've ever read something from an account of one of his lives. But everything Jesus does in this little snippet of this account of his life is unusual. It's surprising. Jesus is in the wrong place, at the wrong time, seemingly talking to the wrong kind of person. And he's at a well at midday, and you know, with a woman who's had a bit of a difficult life. And being at a well at midday, because midday is when it's really hot, and no one really goes to the well, is a little bit like um, when you've had a really heavy night out at crisis, and you do something you deeply regret, and you know you're going to get grief from it from all the people on your hall corridor. So you don't want to see them, and so you wait in your room, and then you sneak into your hall kitchen when you're sure no one's around, make yourself a cup of coffee, and go back to bed. Anyone ever experienced that? No, you don't have to put your hands up, that's okay. Um, um, It's a little bit like that. It's a little bit like going out midday, make sure no one's around, because you're getting so much grief about the way you've lived your life, and the mistakes you've made, and the regrets you've got, you just can't bear to see anyone again. So you you go to the well at midday, you go to your hall kitchen when no one's around, and just dive in get your coffee and go and um some people are nodding but it's okay I understand and uh, you um and this 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 woman is is fascinating so she's um she's had you know Jesus says that you had five marriages and the guy you're now with isn't isn't your husband and that might seem like I mean I don't know if you read when you hear that said you say what's that got to do with me you know I'm in first second year third year university I haven't had a husband or a wife you know, let alone five, give me time, you know. Um, but I, I, when I read it, I, do you know what I think? I think, yeah, I haven't had five wives. I can tell you, I can think of five decisions I made that seem to follow me around. Like five if-onies. Oh, if only I hadn't done that. If only I had done that. You know, those five kind of regrets that you can, you can come. And the culture 2,000 years ago um, the culture now isn't great, but the culture 2,000 years ago was much harsher on women. And um, she would have attracted a lot of uh, aggression in her community because of those choices. 
um, probably a lot more than, than the guys she'd been with. That was the kind of unequal nature of the, um, of the culture, even more so than today. But in spite of what seems like the gender barrier, in spite of what seems like the cultural barrier, she's Samaritan, Jesus is Jewish, in spite of what seems like the moral barrier, she's had a difficult life, um, Jesus starts a conversation with her. I find that fascinating. Jesus starts a conversation with her. Like, he's not put off by any of that. He just wants to connect with a person, and he asks her for a drink. And the woman is shocked. She's like, you're asking me for a drink? Like, look at what's going on here. It's midday. It's me. It's you. Your religious teacher. I'm me. And we're just going to have a little chat by this well. Are you sure about that? Um, and he says, look, if you really knew he was speaking to you, you'd ask for living water. And he's only just met her, but it seems like Jesus seems to understand what her greatest need is. Not for water which satisfies her thirst for a few days, but for water which would satisfy her thirst for the rest of her life and beyond. I was reading an interview with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio recently. I call him Leo, but you know, I know. Um, and, uh, and he was saying, um, he, he said to the interviewer this line, which I just thought was fascinating. He said, look, the, the interviewer was basically puffing him up and saying, look, you're amazing, Leo, you're great, you look amazing, amazing this, amazing that. And he just wasn't having any of it. He was like saying, look, you can have great wealth, you can have great success, but ultimately, they don't bring happiness. And the interviewer was like, come on, like, Paul, how can that be? And he was like, no, 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 seriously, they don't bring happiness. And I, I, if I was the interviewer, I'd say, okay, let's just swap just for two weeks, and I'll see, you know, let, show me, I mean, if it's so bad. But I think it's fascinating that someone in that position is saying, look, actually, I've got to the top of this ladder that lots of people are climbing to get to the top of, and there's nothing there. It's not giving me that significance that... Um, I thought I would get. And that's what I found. I mean, I, as I said, I, I was earning lots of money. I was very successful in my job. And it was great in one level. I mean, they were all good things. It's good to have lots of money. You can do lots of things with it. It's good to be successful in your job. You know, it annoys your little brother. There's lots of things that are useful um, from those things. But what I, and, and, and it was fun because you go to parties and people would be really interested. They'd be like, oh, you know, you defend um, people who've committed people who have been accused of committing really interesting crimes. You know, what are they like? That should be fascinating. People who are really interested in you. And, um, and it was even better if they knew the people I worked with because they were known as being brilliant in their sphere. So they would say, oh, you work with them. They're brilliant. You must be brilliant. And I'd say, no, 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 no. But inside I was thinking, yes. Um, and, but it, but it, what was funny, though I had these things in my life, good things, that should have given me a sense of significance. They didn't. And I kind of empathized a little bit with what's said here. It was like I never had enough of those things. It was like I had an infinite thirst, and I was trying to satisfy it with finite things. And uh, the, the woman, you know, she seems to have been seeking significance in relationships. And, uh, and it's fascinating because, I mean, I... I was in a nightclub uh, a few years ago, and somehow I was with some work colleagues, and somehow we managed to find ourselves into the VIP thing. And when you're in the VIP section of the nightclub, everyone treats you really special, like you're a big deal, even though we weren't. And so we're in there, and everyone was kind of coming up to us and chatting, and was trying to work out, like, are you footballers? Like, who are you? And then after a while, they realized that we weren't anyone, so they just left us alone. But, but, but while this conversation was going on, one of the women who came up to me was, was saying, you know, I can't remember, she said, you know, what do you do? And I... I kind of said I was involved with the church. Massive disappointment to her. 
Um, but, but, but she was saying, oh, well, it's interesting you said that because I've always been fascinated by faith. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, I, I, just, I just am really fascinated by the idea that you could place your trust in like a person. I just, I just, I feel like that's something I need in my life. Obviously, it's not for people like me. And I said, what do you, what do you mean it's not for people like you? And she said, trust me, if you knew the kind of person I was, if you knew the kind of place that I'd been, if you knew the things I'd done and the people I hurt, you wouldn't even want to be speaking to me now. And I, I've never forgot that conversation because I think it's interesting with relationships. We're desperate for relationships which are real. This week is called Real. And all of us on one level are desperate for relationships which are real, where people will love us and accept us. But on one level, lots of us fear rejection because we know deep down that we're all kind of like a mix of good and bad. And so we know we can't really experience real love unless we're prepared to open ourselves up and reveal who we really are. But the fear is when people really see who we really are um, without having any airbrushing or filters, they'll probably walk away. And to be rejected for who we really are, that would be devastating. So we wear masks and we put up a front and we do different things. So it feels to me like often we have a deep longing for and fear of intimacy. But here's the thing. What if you're already fully known and yet completely loved? Now Jesus says to this uh, woman, he says, you know, go, go and bring your husband. She says, I haven't got a husband. He says, yeah, yeah, you're right to say you've got no husband. You've had five husbands, and now the person you're with isn't your husband. And that's quite a shocking line. It sums up a life of pain and regret, broken dreams in a few words. I mean, if you've ever experienced one broken relationship, you know the pain and the cost of that. But what actually is a kind thing that Jesus is doing, because what he's saying to her as they stand by this well at the middle of the day is... I know. All that you might try and conceal from me, all that you might be ashamed of, all that you might try and hide, I know. And I'm still here. I'm still chatting to you. I haven't walked away in disgust. And I find that fascinating because you can't shock Jesus. Do you know, Jesus is never going to turn around to you and say, you did what? With the person in the hockey team, like the goalie in the hockey, what? Why did? You, why? I can't believe you did that. You can't shock him. He already knows you to the core of your being, and yet he starts the conversation. He wants to know you better, and that might sound, um, you know, he's he, he knows it all, and he's still there. He wants to know her. He wants her to know his love, and that might sound too big to be true. Lots of things in life either sound too good to be true. It's like, well, if that, that, I'd love that to be true, but it's too good to be true. Or they're too true to be good. Like, that is so unflinchingly honest about life, it doesn't sound like good news to me. This does sound too good to be true. But actually, it's, it's because it's a gift. And Jesus says it's God's gift to you. And the whole point of a gift is that it's free to you. But that doesn't... Um, just because it doesn't cost you doesn't mean there's not a cost. And when you give a gift, the giver pays the price. The giver bears the cost. The giver counts the cost. And the woman says, I'm waiting for the Messiah, the one um, who came to save the people. 
And Jesus says this remarkable, extraordinary line. He says, I'm him. It's me. Yeah, he reveals himself as the one who they've all been waiting for, the one who's going to come and rescue him. And he reveals it. And I find this just fascinating. I don't, you might not find it, I find it really interesting. Like he reveals it not to a king in a castle, not to a teacher in a temple, not to a politician in a parliament, but to this particular woman at a well. He says, you're waiting for a savior? It's me. No one knows yet, but it's me. And I love that. I love that. Someone who was an outcast in her community, he draws close to and gives her the most significant piece of news anyone could speak that day, that year, that millennia. It's remarkable. You see, he's the one who makes it possible to know God. He, on the cross, takes all the guilt, all my guilt, all the shame, all my shame, all the sin, all my sin, on himself, so that there's nothing to separate us from God. He was willing to pay any price, bear any burden, incur any cost to rescue you, to rescue me. And he makes it possible for me, for you, to be completely known and completely loved. And what I love about this is that when you see that, when you glimpse that, when you get a sense of that, it really has the possibility to transform your life. Because then, you know, Actually, most people would say true significance, true purpose is to be found when you're willing to look outside yourself and to to, to kind of invest your life, go beyond your life for others. You know, to invest yourself in something greater than yourself. But it's really hard to do that because it feels like if we ain't looking out for me, who is going to be looking out for me? But what if there's someone who knows you to the core of your being, who knows you, all of the good, all the bad, who knows you to the bottom of your soul and yet loves you to the sky, who has your best interests at heart, that frees you to take risks. That frees you to take opportunities. That frees you to invest your life in something greater than yourself. And that's what I find fascinating. This woman then goes off. You know, having sought it in romantic relationships, having felt the pain of that, then goes off and has this new confidence and boldness to go to her whole town and talk about what she's just seen and heard. Her significance shifts like that because she knows deep down she's truly known and yet she's truly loved. And that's what I've found. I found that as I've got to know Jesus, as I've encountered him, as I've placed my trust in him, I've realized the significance of what he's done for me and that's given me a new understanding of my own significance is amplified some people fear that when you place your trust in Jesus everything else in your life becomes less significant what I found is it's amplified the significance of every moment in my life every connection every relationship has been amplified in significance because I know that I'm not relying on those things for my significance where you look for your significance is one of the most important things about you And Jesus says, you have an infinite significance because I was prepared to give everything to know you.